All praises to our God, who is worthy to be praised. Let's give the Lord a hand praise on this morning. God is a good God, isn't he? We honor God today for his many blessings. I want to get right to my assignment. I just want to say, first of all, that God is a good God. He is a good God. Amen. Amen. Thank God for life, health, and strength. Thank God for salvation. It's still a miracle whether you know it or not. Salvation. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Ephesians, the fourth chapter. A very familiar passage of scripture. Ephesians 4. Amen. 17 through 24. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Do you have it? If not, it is on the screens for you. There you find these words recorded for our consideration and our discussion on this morning. This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, and the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness and with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And that the word of God is already blessed. May God bless the hearers and the doers of his word. With your prayers and God's authority, I want to talk to you for a few minutes from the subject, Walking in Truth. Walking in Truth. If you've been following us over the past uh, few weeks, uh, this is the third installment of the series, Walk It Out. Amen. In the previous installments, our pastor has laid out the theological foundation uh, for which we are to follow as we work towards closing the gaps in our lives. In this book of Ephesians, we learn that Paul is writing to the Ephesian church. And the purpose of the letter is to strengthen the believers in their faith by explaining the nature and the purpose of the church. So Paul initiates a conversation. And he opens this dialogue in the very first verse of this chapter by stating that he is a prisoner. But it's interesting to me that he does not refer to himself as a prisoner of the state, but a prisoner of the Lord. Because although he is kept under involuntary restraint, he is bound not by man's law, but by God's grace to preach the gospel. He is compelled he is obligated to do what God has commanded of him. He has voluntarily submitted himself to the authority of Christ. So this physical imprisonment, it cannot compare to the spiritual commitment that he has to follow God. So he's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he needed to let the people know that I'm committed, and I'm going to need you to be committed. So there's a certain way that we need to walk. Are you with me? When I was a child around four or five years old, I remember 
uh, growing up and in my dad's closet, I went in there to put on a pair of his shoes. I wanted to be like him, so I felt like uh, if I put on his shoes that I would literally become him. And I'll be able to walk around and talk like him and walk like him and make decisions around the house like him. Now, I'm only four years old. But I found myself stumbling. I found myself falling, even at the attempt to try to walk in his shoes. So my mom, she said, listen, you can't walk in your daddy's shoes. Your foot too small. So each day I would check to see if my foot got bigger. But what I really needed, so each day I'm doing that, but in reality, I didn't really need a bigger foot. What I really needed was time. I needed time to walk in his shoes. I needed time not to stumble. I needed time not to fall. I needed time. But in order for that to happen, I needed to go through a process. And it would be years before I would be ready to make those decisions like he made and walk like him and talk like him. If I could turn a corner here, Paul is letting us know that in this walk, this Christian life is also a process. And this walk won't happen overnight. You're going to stumble sometimes. You're going to fall. You're going to make some mistakes. It's going to take time, and we don't always recognize the spiritual process that we need to go through or the commitment that will take place in order to walk it out and live like Christ. When we say walk, what do we mean? What do we mean? Well, it means our way of behaving ourselves. It's our way of living. It's our, way, uh, it's our lifestyle, if you will. And it's interesting what Paul says in this letter in verse 17. Um, instead of telling us how we should walk, he actually starts off with the negatives. He tells us how we should not walk. Look at verse 17. He said, you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Paul is talking to Gentiles about other Gentiles, another group that are not saved. They're not disciples of Christ. He's saying, don't walk like them. He's saying, our lifestyle should be different. People ought to see a difference in our lives. If you've truly left that life of sin, if you've really changed your ways, then there ought to be a difference. Now that you're a follower of Christ, you should know how to act. There ought to be a radical but measurable change in our behavior. When I was in a grocery store, I was around 9 or 10 years old in New York, this store called, this store called A&P. Some of y'all don't know about A&P. But um, it's like our Winn-Dixie. So I'm around 9 or 10 years old, and she would walk me to the store. And before we went into the store, she would grab my arm, and she said, listen. She had this long pause, this long pause before she said the next thing. I don't know what the pause was for. I guess it's to increase the intensity of what she getting ready to say. Listen, when we get into the store, you better know how to act. Now, it wasn't ACT. It was ACK. There's a difference. And I knew what that difference was. She wanted me to behave in a certain way, and if I didn't, then she would wonder what's wrong with my mind. She, stays, she would say, self, I know you got some sense. I know you're not crazy. You heard what I told you to do, right? Now listen, the reason that Paul says don't walk like the other Gentiles is because of what he categorizes as the futility of their mind. 
they are still acting and living in sin and unrighteousness and vanity and excuses and pride and rationalizations. In other words, it's the way we think. It's the way they were thinking. We as Christians think differently than the unsaved. Even, the, you know, that pastor said last week, when we become saved, salvation means a change of the mind from one direction to the opposite direction. And when our mind has been changed, that means our entire outlook has changed. Our viewpoint has changed, our attitude, our disposition, our values, and our morals and ethics. Everything about us is different. Even our interpretation of life, everything has changed. But there are some people who have not made that change that Paul was talking about. And he's saying their minds have been deceived. Listen, there is an empty illusion of the person who thinks that there is satisfaction in sin. There is a deception. If you think that there is contentment or, or uh, fulfillment or any type of gratification in living a life of sin. You've been blinded. You've been tricked. You've been duped. Hoodwinked. Whatever you want to call it. You've been deceived. Why? The Bible says in Proverbs 14 and 12, he says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now watch this. Look how this reads in the Message Bible. The Message Bible says, there is a way of life that looks harmless enough but look again. It leads straight to hell. Sure, those people appear to be having a good time, but all that laughter will end in heartbreak. This is the graphic picture of the lost man today without Christ. There are people today that will take their entire check and blow it all in a club. You can't borrow $5 from them on Thursday but they're going to make it rain on Friday. It's raining. Why? Just to have a good time. There are people who take their entire life savings, go down to Las Vegas, and live it up gambling in the casinos, all their money away. Why? Just to have a good time. There are people who are addicted to drugs and narcotics and alcohol that will literally kill themselves trying to enjoy life. Just to have a good time. They say, I'm living my life. I'm just doing me. That's, that's just me. That's not living. That's a lie. The Bible says, I come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. I want to unpack something. There are two characteristics that Paul um, is talking about, which illustrate the absolute uh, pointlessness or the ineffective life of the man without Christ. This is the reason for their futility or their vanity. First, Paul says in the 18th look verse, look at the 18th verse. It says, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the blindness of their heart. He talks about two things here. He talks about two things that we need to consider. First, the unsaved man's thinking is futile because it is darkened. He thinks that he's enlightened. He thinks that he's smart. He thinks he's educated. He's tolerant. He's rational. He thinks of these things because he has rejected the Bible 
and he has rejected the word of God and believes that the latest philosophies and uh, the, the latest uh, theories are real. And he believes that, when in reality, the Bible says he's in the dark. There are a number of philosophies and theories that, that, and worldviews that challenge the concept of truth. There is a philosophy called relativism. Relativism is the position that all points of view are equally valid and the individual determines what is true and relative for them. Relativism says that truth is different for different people. So there's no such thing as absolute truth. Because what's true for you may not be true for me. What's right for you may not be right for me. And what's wrong for me may not be wrong for you. So there are no moral absolutes. There are no moral uh, uh, right or wrong. So by denying the existence of God and by denying the word of God, the relativist can make no absolute statements. Mm -hmm. This means that he doesn't know. He doesn't know what's true or false. He just does not know because there's no standard. He will challenge everything you say. I need to show you something. Watch this clip. Bill Maher, host of Real Time with Bill Maher, is tackling an often taboo subject, organized religion, this time in his new movie, Religious. Religion, to me, is a giant elephant in the room of comic gold because, <laughs> you know, we're talking about a garden with a talking snake. If you can't find humor there, people are just used to it. Yeah. That's why they don't laugh at it. But, yes, I also think there's an important point to be made, and that does have to do with doubt. Right. Uh, I, I don't like the word atheist because, to me, it mirrors the uh, certainty of religion. I preach the gospel of I don't know. Yeah. And I think, you know, people have had so many religious movies. They They've had the Passion of the Christ, and they've had the robe and the Ten Commandments. Isn't there time for one, for the tens of millions of people who are rationalists, who think like I do? Listen, Satan has blinded the minds of people. He has blinded their mind because he doesn't want them to see the truth that is in Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Romans 1 and 22, professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. We as followers of Jesus don't have these types of issues because we have absolutes. Huh? We know the truth and we know that Satan is a father of lies and there is no truth in him. What do we know? We know that Jesus Christ is the way. He is the truth and the life. We know that Jesus is the only Savior and the only way to God. We know that the Bible is the only infallible written word of God. We know that the Lord is good and his mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. These are things that we know. You want to know the truth? The truth is by his stripes, I'm already healed. The truth is my God shall supply all of my needs. The truth is whatever you ask in prayer and believe in your heart, you shall receive it. My God. I know the truth. All things work together. For those who love God. He said, I will never leave you. He said, I'll never forsake you. That's the truth. No weapon formed against me will prosper. No weapon. These are absolute statements. These are not relative statements. You want another absolute? 
the relativist is absolutely wrong. That's an absolute. Here is the problem. Relativism is rebellion. It is rebellion against the objective reality of God. The sheer existence of God creates the existence of truth. You cannot separate God from truth. They are one. God is the ultimate and final standard of all claims of truth. Who he is, what he says, what he wills is a standard for measuring all other things. God owns truth. He owns the rights. He owns the patents. He owns the copyrights. He owns the deed. He owns all of truth. When relativism says that there is no standard of truth, it sounds like an atheist that commits treason against God. Listen, without God, there is no hope. And we have a hope. Our hope is built on the truth. Somebody said, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Then he said, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground, all other theories, all other ideals, all other philosophies is sinking sand. Everything else but the word of God will fail. Now to my second point. The second characteristic that Paul talks about is, look at verse 18 again. He said, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Once a person's understanding is darkened, the Bible says, uh, because of your ignorance, you are now alienated. The unsaved man's thinking is futile because they are alienated. That means that they are disconnected. That means that they are detached. They're separated from the life of God. Listen, every human being in this world exists in only two categories to God. You are either spiritually dead or you're spiritually alive. There is nothing else. Either you're connected or you're not connected. If you've been alienated from God, you're disconnected from life. And if you're disconnected from life, that means you're dead because Christ is life. How many of you know that outside of Christ there is no life? Huh? If you're separated from life, you're dead. You might look alive uh, because good works, effort, tradition may look like life to other dead people. But those things have no spiritual power to transform you or change your life. Just like a corpse cannot do anything to help itself, spiritually dead people cannot save themselves. Dead things have no desire to submit to a creator. It's like a deflated helium balloon. You ever had a party and had one of the inflated balloons? They're they all in the air, and then a few days later, where they at? They're on the ground. Now, expecting air to just magically go into that balloon, it's not going to happen. It can't put air back in itself. It needs someone else to put air in it. 
dead people cannot revive themselves. They need a life giver. They need a life changer. They need a life transformer. They need a life supporter. They need a life donor. Listen, listen. Now, some of us may have decided to donate part of our bodies after we die. And if you do that, maybe someone else can have a better life on this earth. If you do donate your heart or your kidney or your liver or your eyes, you can donate so many things. The, the problem with that, it's not really a problem, but the thing about it is that those things are temporary. But God is the ultimate life donor. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he gave us eternal life. Everything became new. I didn't just get a new liver, a new heart. Everything becomes new. And it's not temporary. It's eternal. It will last forever. If the earthly house of this tabernacle is dissolved, I have another building of God, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Are you with me? My God. The Bible says that we are all dead in our transgressions and our sins, but we can be made alive through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The life Jesus gives is not just eternal life uh, for the hereafter, but also spiritual life on earth that enables us to walk it out for the purpose for which he created. Somebody say, walk it out. Walk it out. Amen. Listen, Paul concludes this part of his letter by letting us know that in order to walk out this truth, you're going to have to put on some things and take some things off. He said there's some things you're going to have to let go and some things you're going to have to grab hold of. Um, look at verse 22 to 24. He says uh, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Listen, as I close, I'm reminded of a story of a man who was remodeling his house. And he had bought some new furniture for his living room. Um, but he started running out a little bit of money, so he decided to keep the dining room set. The table was fine, but the chairs, it needed, it needed some work. It had an old pattern on there, and it had some old stains on there. So he decided to give the chairs a makeover. So he called an upholsterer, and he said, listen, can you come by and re-upholster these chairs? Uh, and to save some money, I'm kind of running out of money. I don't want you to do anything. I just need you to put the new material over the old fabric. Can you do that? Help me save some money here. And the upholsterer said, no, no, I can't do that because you'll ruin the shape of the chair if you put new material over the old material. And the old fabric will wrinkle underneath and create a bumpy surface beneath the new fabric. And not just that, you told me it has some stains on it. The old stains will transfer if you ever get the cushion wet. So listen, no, it, you'll be, let me, it'll cost you a little bit more, but you'll be happier if I just do it right. Listen, the word of God, the work that God has in our lives is similar. Because God is not interested in merely covering up our old man and changing our spiritual appearance on the outside. Listen, he intends, he desires to actually replace the character by what is called the new man. 
made in the image of Christ. Are you with me? Because, listen, the flesh has a tendency to come through like an old stain and transfer through. But if you do it right, it'll cost you something. But in the end, you'll be happier. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. And behold, all things become new. I'm going to need you to stand right now. We are done.